Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. There's a coaching theme to today's show. I'm joined by David Priest, the goalkeeping coach and columnist, and by Tony Hodson of the Coach's Voice platform. I've been to see Brighton manager Graham Potter. He was everything I expected. Emotionally engaged, refreshingly realistic, a thinking man's coach with a vast range of influences. First though, the antics of Thomas Tuchel and Antonio Conte. Toy town aggression. But strip that away and we had two elite coaches at the top of their games. Tony, let's start with Conte. Is he the coach with the best chance to end City and Liverpool's dominance? It's a really good question. And on the evidence of his achievements to date, both in, in the Premier League and outside it, the obvious answer is, is possibly yes. First and foremost, this guy is just an absolute winner, isn't he? As a player, he was a serial winner with Juventus. As a coach, he's achieved at pretty much every every club he's been at. There have been a couple of notable exceptions, which is quite interesting. Arezzo, which was his first club in Italy, he actually took them down. And he had a tough time at Atalanta as well. Two kind of... Kind of Tricky experiences quite early on in his career, which, which can be quite formative and informative, I think, for coaches. Beyond that, he's been promoted with Bari and Siena, lead champions with Juve, Chelsea and Inter. And you could probably argue that in terms of pure coaching, his work with a really average Italy squad, I thought, at Euro 2016 was, was some of the best on show. And they, they were a penalty away from knocking out Germany in the quarterfinals. He just, he, his pedigree, so his pedigree is full of winning and he's, he's a coach who just thrives on well, he, he works with clarity, clearly gets his message across unequivocally, both to players and to, and to the people he works for. His players know really quickly what's expected of, of them. And I think his teams throughout his career have been a reflection of, of, of his own personality as, as a player, kind of combative with no little quality. He's a hugely strong character. I think he has a really nice habit for a coach of, of his will being so strong that it bends other people in his direction. And I think you can witness that this summer with what he's achieved with Daniel Levy getting the checkbook out more than he ever has done before. I think the important thing is there's still a huge distance between Tottenham last season and the top two. There were 22 and 21 points behind the top two. And under Conte, and Conte wasn't there all of last season, but they lost at home to Southampton and Wolves and away at Burnley and hell, they even lost at Old Trafford. So there's still work to be done, but um, they're definitely going in the right direction, aren't they? Yeah. Only Liverpool... Dave, have picked up more points from losing positions since Conte took charge in November. So that Tottenham team is beginning to reflect the manager's character. I suppose, is his greatest achievement to date making 
them less spursy. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, an issue for them from that perspective was probably be going behind in the first place. That's probably the one thing you probably got the source and, and looked at it that way. But looking at the business that they've done this summer, it, it just seems there's been a turnover of players who were good players, but not seen as 100% starting 11, who can come in and do a job and are of a certain level. Now it's starting to turn a little bit now. You know, the Charles has been brought in, not in the start 11, but he's on the bench, makes it stronger. Perisic makes it stronger. You've got players like that who don't weaken the side when they are playing. And as shown when Perisic came on, you know, he adds great value to the team. So I think from that point of view, that's probably one of the greatest things that he's done this season already. But you're right, it is his mentality. It is former team in his own sort of, uh, his own image. And when you see these histrionics on the on the sidelines and you see a manager, the way that he is, it, it sometimes it can it can have a negative effect and send a sort of stressful vibe to the pitch, but not with him because, like Tony said, he's got a strength, he's got a conviction. When a player believes in a manager's decisions and the way that he does things, then it can have a hugely positive effect, and I think that's exactly what he's done. Mm. You know, looking looking for flaws, if you like, Tony, does he sometimes? need to get out of his own way. You know, I, I look at, he's not starting, or he hasn't started Eve Basuma yet. I think that's a case in point. And also, you know, he made a point of stressing that Jed Spence wasn't his signing. Now, that's obviously just designed, presumably, to keep the club on its toes. But does he need to throw those little hand grenades in? It's part of what he is, isn't it? I don't think. I think when you're at his age now, he's in his early fifties, isn't he? I don't. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. It's just part of the way he operates. I think. I mean, Basuma's interesting. I. I can't imagine it will be long before Basuma's in in the starting eleven. It's absolutely clear that he will improve that Tottenham midfield. But then, I guess the team Conte managed at the end of last season finished pretty strongly, and he isn't always one to change things immediately. Do you remember when he was when he was back at Chelsea in his first season there? He didn't start with the back three that he'd used to such great effect at Juventus in Italy. It took a little while. Do you remember that? They took a battering at Arsenal, didn't they? And he changed it after that. And also, he's not one... I know he, he may make the point about Spence, but he's not... You know, he's, he isn't... He's shown that he's perfectly capable of working with what he's got. I mean, going back to that Chelsea season, you wouldn't have said at the start of the season that Marcos Alonso and Victor Moses would be wing-backs in a championship-winning team, would you? Look, he's obviously a passionate and fiery coach, and he's not afraid of making his feelings known. But I think he's also, in, you strip that away, he's more than capable of making pragmatic decisions and, and working with, what, with the players that he's got at his disposal. But yeah, on, on Basuma particularly, I'd be amazed if he wasn't in the starting lineup sooner rather than later. I think a lot of the times when, when people talk about Conte and they talk about his demeanour and the, uh, his character, I think it really takes away from the actual abilities that he has as a coach. And, and I think that all stems back to his education as a coach as well. I think Tony will agree with me that it's possibly only like the, the last decade in, in English coaching where we're talking about terms about non-linear learning and teaching. And you go back to um, the Italian FA's technical centre, you know, where, where they've been talking about that since the 50s and 60s. That's the way they they teach their coaches. They teach them in a way that they, they learn to think for themselves. You know, you go back to Conte's time when he was going through his coach education, you know, and he's having to present this 
page dossier on uh, I think it was four two three one formation. All the positives, all the negatives, everything that would be thrown up in a game, whether it was related to you know the state of the pitch at the time, the the state of play, the positions in the league, all these minute details, and it forced them to to think about it in such a deep way that when it comes to him being in a position now, the tactical detail that he goes through games and the ability to be able to switch things up in, in games, which he did against Chelsea, and it didn't really change the ebb and the flow of the game that much, but what it did, it allowed them to get back in the game and score that equaliser. And I think, like I said, all the talk about his character and the way that he is, it just takes away from his real pure ability as a coach. That ability as a coach... You know, Spurs are, are playing Wolves this weekend, Tony, in the BT Sport lunchtime game, Saturday lunchtime game. What happens when a coach is tied strategically through an agent, in this case, Mendes, to a club at Wolves? You know, they, they're going to bring in, it seems, yet another Portuguese player, Matias Nunes from Sporting Lisbon, which isn't a great surprise given their recruitment history. How does a coach work in that system? Does he just have to accept what's going on around him and make the best out of the players he's got? I mean, it depends where that coach has come from. I mean, Bruno Larja is is a Portuguese coach who is almost part part of that model himself. So, what, why would he do anything differently? You know, he, he he may not have the. I mean, the model of football clubs is changing anyway. So that you know, coaches are working with sporting directors and, and technical directors, directors of whatever whatever you want to call it. So their their involvement in recruitment and actually we'll come onto this with Graham Potter. We'll chat with Graham Potter. They're not as heavily involved in the recruitment as, as they once were. So they tend to work with the players that are put in front of them. And they may have a view on it. Wolves is, a, is a, under Chinese ownership, but it has a this crazy heavily Portuguese influence that that, that comes from George Mendes, as, as we all know, and, and his agency. This is why they employ Portuguese managers. This is why they sign a good portion of Portuguese players. And it was exactly the same with the Nuno Espirito Santo. And, and it's where we are now. The question is, does that create a question of kind of identity for the club? Well, especially a club like Wolves with such a great history, possibly, but only if only if the current model stops working. And at the moment, Wolves are a team that have, you know, for a number of seasons now hovered around kind of mid-table of the Premier League, which in their recent history is way better than they've achieved. So at the moment, I think the fans are probably happy, the club's probably happy. And if the vast number of Portuguese players that they sign keep performing, or, or some of them keep performing on the pitch to the point where that stays the case, then I, I think everyone's pretty happy. I mean, Bruno Large's main problem on the pitch at the moment is just finding the goals. We'll see, you know, Gonzalo Guedes from Valencia, another Portuguese player, may, may help in that regard. Otherwise, I, I, don't, I don't think he'll worry too much about the ownership, Mike, to be honest, it's, and the way it works, because he's just a central part of that. Yeah, well, I suppose David is is dealing with you know differing ownership principles and structures and individuals, just part of the, you know the management game these days. You know, and we began by by talking about you know the WWE stuff at Stamford Bridge. Well, you've got Thomas Tuchel; he's adjusting to a new owner in Todd Bowley, who memorably has been described by Bloomberg as as, as living out his inner Ted Lasso. As a coach and manager, Tuchel has to ride with that different sort of wave, doesn't he? Yeah, but I also think it changes the way that he's possibly worked in the past because the way that modern football is structured at a hierarchical level, it's supposed to take away a lot of the administration and a lot of the pressure and recruitment away from the manager so they can purely just concentrate on the, and focus on the 
on the team itself. Thomas Tuchel's in a position now where he has somebody above him operating in a role that's unfamiliar to him and possibly where he is going to have to have more influence and, and more guidance to make sure that the job's done at the, at the level that he wants because you know it's okay when you're... If you're dealing with a director of football who's, uh, say, Monchi, for instance, somebody who's with a proven track record who you can trust, this is a different matter. So he, he, I would think that he would have a lot more involvement than he, he possibly would if uh, Maria Granovskaya was still there. Of course, he, he, he would have to. But when it comes to, to, to agents and, and having to deal with this uh, hierarchy, it's always been the same, but I think it was just on a more on a more personal level. It, rather than just dealing with a between a manager and a, and an owner and having those conversations and arguments, now it's filtered through different levels of, of recruitment departments and, and and board level. I mean, the, I, the interesting thing about about the, the the system at Chelsea is that I know that Thomas Tuchel really enjoyed working with Marina Granovskaya, um, but the question was whether he enjoyed working with her or whether he enjoyed working with that as 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 David said that position in between the ownership and, and the head coach or the manager. And actually, if you look at Chelsea's recruitment in the last couple of years, it hasn't been amazing. I mean, Lukaku was the kind of, has, is the poster boy signing that, that went wrong. And then things like Sal Naguez just didn't work. And, and not every player's worked there. So I think there was a little bit of pressure on the recruitment side of things. And I think Todd Bowley's come in. Now, he he, and, he doesn't have the, the same pockets that Roman Abramovich had. So there is a, more, a bit more pressure on the recruitment to work. If something doesn't work, they can't just... Well, presumably they can't go out and spend another heap of money. But the word from in the club is that they expect a title challenge this season, not just battling for the top four. And I think Bowley and his, his ownership team have shown that they're willing to spend big and early to try and finance that. And if those if those early signings, you know, Koulibaly, Raheem Sterling, anyone else that comes in, Fafana from Leicester, if he arrives, if they go well, if they work is there a possibility that Todd Bowley might decide to carry on doing it? Which presumably, as David said, would put a bit more pressure on, on uh, Thomas Tuchel without that that director of football in between. So interesting times ahead, I think. Yeah, well, there's no better example of alignment than Graham Potter and Brighton. He's got a unique background as a coach. University football, lower tiers of Swedish football, the Ghanaian women's team. Swansea and obviously now Brighton. There are so many different social and cultural experiences that he's growing on. But how has he actually been shaped by football? Welcome, Graham, and thanks for your time. Appreciate it as always. First question, you've got a 17-year-old boy in your office. You're 47, 30 years, couple of generations in football terms. He's made the first team, but he's been booed by his own fans. What do you tell him to enable him to survive that experience? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think you've got to help him understand that the world is, uh, is firstly not very fair and you can't expect people to necessarily act in the way that you expect them or want them to be. You've got to understand that uh, people see the world differently and it's part of uh, life 
that that's a challenge that you have to overcome because it isn't fair that a 17-year-old is, is getting that sort of feedback. But it's, but it's also the reality of professional football in terms of people are allowed to have their say and they don't really care too much about how old you are. Because, of course, you were that 17-year-old boy at Birmingham, weren't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you find within yourself to get through that type of experience? Well, I suppose you learn quickly that the support isn't necessarily always there and you have to be able to pull on something a lot more stable than external support that ultimately doesn't really care about you as a person, if we're being honest. Supporters want you to do well and they want you to do well because of you representing their team, but the reality of how much they care for you is, is uh, very debatable as a human being. And that's something you just have to deal with and you have to come to terms with that pretty quickly. And I suppose that was the, and then, and then it's like, okay, well, so what do you anchor yourself to? And then it's probably the people that are closer to you, your family, the friends, the people that actually care for you as a human being, not just of what you are on the side of the pitch or on the pitch. Find some strength from your own character, from your own personality, from your own people. Because uh, if you're relying on the, the external noise to make you feel good or not, then the water's going to be very choppy, I think. So that was my... And, and I, I don't think it's, it's not, not easy. It's not nice, that's for sure. Do those sort of experiences inform your coaching or your management? Is another example of the brutality of football. Mm. You are released by York City on your wedding day. <laughs> Get your head around that. <laughs> yeah, but again, it's a business ultimately and um, the clubs have to act according to that and you, you sort of understand that, you know, it's, uh, they don't necessarily, they can't make a decision based on what's happening in your personal life. They have to make the decision based on what they think is the right thing for their club and, and you respect, you know, you have to respect that. So timing sometimes is off, but it, it is what it is. No one, I don't think anybody's doing it on anything on purpose, but it's part of the, the cutthroat side of a business decision. And that's, that's how it is. If, they, if the club want to release me, then they have to release me and they have to let me know. And so what if it coincides my wedding day? That's just life. <laughs> <laughs> but does that make, it must make you think, well, you know, is professional football made out for me or am I made out for it? Well, I think you have to develop a, uh, an understanding of it. And like I said, it's no point thinking, oh, this isn't fair, this isn't right, because ultimately it's stuff you can't control. That's the first thing. It is what it is. You know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, there's no loyalty. Well, there's, well there isn't. Because if you lose a few games, there'll be people shouting for you to be sacked pretty quickly. So all these emotive words, ultimately there are people responsible for football clubs that have to make decisions for the interests of the football club. Brighton and Hove Albion, if they think that I'm not the right guy for them in terms of results, they will make a change. Regardless of whether I'm a good guy or not, it's nothing to do with that. It's because they need to make a change. And you have to enter into the football world with that understanding. It's a competitive industry by definition. It's a competition and the people that are in it are also competing with each other to play in that. So it's a really, it's as uh, cutthroat and competitive as, it, as you can imagine. But um, at the same time, you have to just be okay with that and see it for what it is and then position yourself in a place where you can deal with that. In that environment, then, what sort of values 
do you adhere to? And is it possible to even adhere to it in this sort of very messy, fast-paced world that football is? Yeah, I think so. I think there are a few things that you can... There are always a few things that you can hold yourself to. What specifically in your case? Well, I think you try to act with integrity. I think that's important. To be yourself, no matter what is coming at you, to think, well, okay, I can lose my job because I lose football matches. But I don't want to lose my job because I haven't acted in a way that I'm okay with. I think the more you're in it, the more you have to manage yourself and the more you have to understand yourself and deal with the emotions and look to yourself first. So comparing with other people, I think, is so useful. So I try to always think about, okay, what can I do better? How's my situation in comparison to what my situation was yesterday rather than you know, comparing to somebody else that I have no idea about. Don't think that has any value there. And, you know, to to do your best, really, and to take responsibility. I think responsibility is a word that we use a lot, but I don't think it's... Um, it, it, it needs to be understood a bit more. So really try and do something that you think has got a meaning. Really try and do something that you think has a purpose which is fundamentally for me is to help people. It's to try to create environments where people can improve and then take all the ups and downs and particularly the downs that come along with that. What about the weight of caring in that situation? You know, and who cares for you who's the carer himself? You know, there's a, there's a great emotional weight in management, isn't there? You know, I, I've yeah. talked to guys who basically, you know, they'll, they'll hit... You know, the bottle of wine on, on after a game, they almost distance themselves from their family. They know they're doing it, but they can't help themselves because it's an obsessive world or obsessive yeah. job. What about you? How do you deal with those emotional stresses? Because it seems to me that you are a very, very emotionally driven and certainly emotionally intelligent mm. manager of men. Yeah, and I think that's the, that, that's the challenge. Thankfully, I've had, uh, what is it now... How many years? 12 years, maybe even more, 15 years of step-by-step step, taking a different challenge, stretching myself a little bit further. So, you, you know, you gain a bit more age, you gain a bit more knowledge, you gain a bit more experience to be able to deal with things. But it's, um, it's, it's a tricky thing. I think, again, back to the first answer, really, it's to, it's to really try and find the right balance and the right people that you pull for a sense of strength, because ultimately you can't do it on your own. Who are your touchstones then? Who are the people that you would make that call to? Look, give me a bit of advice here, or give me, I want, I want your perspective. Well, I, with my immediate family and my friends that have known me since uh, I was seven years old, because there's an element of, we've just been through so much. Obviously I lost my parents in the last couple of years, and they were a source of, I would say strength for me. But my immediate family, my, my wife, uh, my brother, and then, all, like I said, all my friends and my staff here that have known me for a long time since I pretty much from the, the journey through Sweden. So I think those guys, because they give you a balanced perspective and they'll tell you the truth and they'll be critical, but it'll come from a, a place of care. It'll come from a place of support and understanding. So, and then, like I said, to try and understand that, the, that there's a lot of noise out there that is, that is, it is what it is, it's, it's not relevant. 
Mm. As human beings, it's not so easy to block everything out because I think we, we, you know, we're social. We want people to like us fundamentally. I don't think there's people out there that sort of want to be disliked. They, they understand that it's not about being liked all the time, but still, I think there's something in us that says, you know, you'd rather people with you than against you. But at the same time, you just know that no matter what you do in life, there'll be, I don't know, two out of five that dislike you for whatever reason. Mm. You know, you had a great diversity of experience, you know, right from, you know, the 17 grand a year job at the University of Hull, which you needed to get as a new, newlywed, to working in Sweden, Almost, you know, I think you've spoken about almost like creating your own counterculture there. Yeah. One thing I'm, I'm fascinated by, I know it's only a very short spell, something like six weeks probably, the Ghanaian women's team that you coached, yep. culturally and emotionally, how different was that and how important was that in sort of the jigsaw that you are now? Yeah, yeah. It was another really important piece, I would say, because, um, well, I, I was away from my family for that time and that was the first time I'd been there and again you're in a different culture a different things and a real eye-opener for us there and at the time probably thinking I had all these answers and thinking I was this you know coach with all the knowledge and really having no understanding of anything because of the first time I'd been away from England my my you know my environment so the first time I'm stepping outside that comfort zone if you like and culturally experiencing different things was amazing for me and again it was a complete learning experience and I think you need those those things so yeah six weeks really really challenging so happy to go home at the end of it but really really grateful for the opportunity I mean there were some fantastic people that were there and you're also seeing another side of life aren't yeah you? different culture yeah even at the time you know women's football in Africa you know that was completely completely different and completely unexpected, you know? So from getting off the bus, the players would carry the skips and the male coaches would walk inside. Just you know, bizarre, the, the, to be involved in an African side is amazing because they sing before the game, it's just beautiful. So there's loads of stuff that you go, and this is so different. And, and I think you need that, you need, the, you need to be shocked almost into, the world isn't, isn't how I see it. It's, it's so complex and so different. And so amazing that the more you get exposed to those things, the, I think the better you can start to see your own world. Mm. So as a coach, what's more important to you? Is it the X's and O's or is it the flesh and blood around you? Oh, without doubt, it's the flesh and blood, without doubt. I mean, it's not even a question. And don't get me wrong, the X's and O's have to be organised and that, that has to make sense. And it's it's part of the game and it's an important part of the game but it's the people it's the people is the most important thing and you know football's a results game which it is but it's also a people's business i think and you have to manage the people because if you don't it's very difficult very difficult to get results but it is a people's business that does treat people very badly um I think like everywhere, yes, sometimes no, it provides opportunities as well and and uh, environments that are, that are positive. I mean, um, you know, I look back on my career and I can only be grateful for it because I've had these wonderful experiences and met loads of good people and been able to push myself in an environment that every week I was challenged psychologically, physically to my limit. 
and uh, that's enabled me to grow. You know, those failings, those disappointments, those mistakes, those successes, that's my journey of like my development as a, as a human being. So, I mean, it, it depends how you see it really. And again, all, all we can do is control our own environment and, and make sure that we try and make it as fair and as honest and supportive and caring and nurturing as, as we humanly can in a really, really competitive environment. But I, I don't see it as completely negative because like I said, it's given me a lot and, and, and I think it's allowed me to grow, but clearly like with everything, it's not perfect. Mm. And there's another side to everything. Yeah. Is football shaped as much by failure as it is by success? Or perhaps even more? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd probably have to think about that in a general, whether football is shaped by success or failure. I mean, it'd be interesting to see the, the success of the, the Lionesses, for example, how that can act as a catalyst for change. Social change. Yeah, um, exactly. Whereas I'm not sure failures will would have the same impact or the same positivity. But I think if you're gonna go into sport, you have to deal with both sides and you have to deal with them well. And I think that's something that we're not quite as good at, I don't think, dealing with the the downside or the failures, like you say, or the losses or the defeats. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, it always worries me when I hear even young kids talking about the, the, the score doesn't matter. You know, I think the score does matter. It's a competition. How you deal with it matters. You need the score because you need to deal with defeat. You need to, okay, you've lost. How are you surviving? What are you learning from it? How are you getting better? How are you not turning to the bottle of wine? Mm. You know, all those things. That's like, that's something that we have to be honest about and, and deal with and, and then hopefully see them as a way to learn, mm. to grow, to get better because you need the pain to motivate you to do something different. And sometimes the results, the negative result can be, when you look back, you can look back at, sometimes and go that was that was important for us to have that that feeling that message because it made us do something different and that can be a gift then you talk as a, as a coach about taking your players and the people around you out of their comfort zones you know most famously at the moment in in sweden you know you, you got your players to do swan lake and, and almost expose themselves to to ridicule because as you, dressing rooms are very introspective places aren't they you know? yeah here at Brighton, how do you do that with your players? What sort of things do you do to actually enable the group to grow collectively, but also individually? Well, I think you can do simple things, really. I mean, even just speaking in front of your peers is quite a stressful outside of the comfort zone thing. To articulate an idea, to articulate a thought, or a concept, whether it's a tactical concept, whether it's something you've been thinking about, whether it's something about your family, to be able to stand up in front of your peers and to talk, that's quite stressful. It's outside most people's comfort zone. So that's an, an easy way of doing, achieving those things because the group can improve, the group can grow. You can develop empathy, you can develop self-awareness. You can develop as a person because you're getting the time to chance to practice how it is to speak in front of people. And all the time, the same concept is, you, you know, everyone's pretty much the same. Everyone's in the same position. Taking away those hierarchies, taking away those, keeping everything level, just gives everybody a chance to, like I said, experience how they're feeling at that moment. 
gives us a chance the individual to grow and the group to grow. And at the end result of that, okay, you've just you've lost two key players, yet you've got the strength of the of the of the unit, if you like, has enabled you to get over that. Is that a result of the things that you've just talked about? Well, I would obviously I would like to think so because that's uh, I think how you can how we can compete and ultimately how you can get the maximum out of the resources that you have and that's ultimately what it is and we've all got to make our choices and I'm not saying what I do is better than anybody else but ultimately the job is okay these are the resources you have how do you make the most out of them we can't guarantee that we're going to win every week um, we're going to face a lot of setbacks we're going to face a lot of challenges because of we're in the highest league in the world and we haven't got the best players so what do we do to buffer against the inevitable suffering that we're going to receive and, and, and experience? I mean, if we didn't do anything and everybody was left to their own devices and everybody was looking after themselves, chances are I don't think you've got too much to buffer against the bad times that come your way. So I think there's a, there's a buffering reason to do it and there's also a positive reason to do it, which is you generally believe that people improve and develop and grow and they become a better person and a better footballer as a result of acting and behaving in these ways. Do you think a club like Brighton gets the credit it deserves for the, almost for the clarity of, of its purpose, really? You know, it's very strategic. You've got a, a plan that you adhere to and it's not, it almost goes against some of the conventional wisdom in football that, okay, just, there's a problem, throw money at it. Mm. Yeah, and I would say conventional wisdom in inverted commas because it's not necessarily wisdom. It's just, uh, you know, you can see there's, there's clubs out there that have spent a lot of money. You know, we're talking hundreds of millions, but haven't quite got it right. So it's it can't just be about how much money you spend. I think that would be a, a quite a depressing, and I think eventually people would f fall out of football if that was just the case. I think you always have to provide a, something beyond that for it to be of any interest for it to be of anything really important if it's just a transaction if it's just about money and everybody's league table is determined by that then clearly we're not understanding football because it's again it's about people and you get the wrong people you get the wrong environment you don't appreciate how recruitment aligning the resources with the academy with who you're bringing in how much that can damage your X and O's, mm. your starting 11, then you can burn through a lot of money. Uh, I think it's is, is quite clear. There's a, a lot of examples. Of course, there are examples of football clubs that run incredibly well, that spend money wisely and do it really well. But um, as I've said previously, we can't necessarily worry about the others. We have to just stick to our own idea and try and make our own idea better. We're not saying it's the right idea for everyone, but for us, it's it's important, and we try and do it as best we can. Recruitment, you mentioned there, and that's you know, obviously a fundamental in any football club: the quality of recruitment and you know, the intel, if you like. Mm. How intimately involved are you in that whole process? I wouldn't say intimately involved. I mean, um, one of my staff that came with me is essentially in the recruitment department, Kyle. So he acts as someone that knows me very, very well, knows how we play football, knows the environment, knows 
what we want to try and achieve. And he has a lot of those conversations because for me to have those conversations all the time is time consuming, it's impossible. So he's really important in that regard. I think he, he helps everybody else in that department just to, as, a, as a bridge, as a link between me and the recruitment team. I think we've always worked on the strategy that, you know, recruitment has to like them, the data has to like them. And ultimately, we as a coaching team have to at least like and appreciate and understand because we're working with them and there has to be an alignment. Okay, once you know what you're looking for and you make that call, how can we help them when they come in? So the more information we have, the more knowledge we have, the more we can then, when they come in, align okay what they want to achieve with what the club wants to achieve. I think that's really important. So you can almost steal yourself to let someone go to better himself somewhere else. Yeah, I think you have to make those decisions. You have to make those decisions with all the information, with a calm head, uh, looking at the alternative to it, and I experienced at Swansea what happens when you don't do that and you're left with a lot of highly paid players and it's no guarantees that the things are going to carry forward and the club can be in you know, relatively serious peril. So there's, um, you know, we have a, a responsibility as well to manage the football club in, in line with the, the aims of the, the football club. It'd be easy for me to turn around and say, no, I need to keep Ben White and I need to keep Yves Basuma and I need to keep Mark Ugrella and I need to keep Dan Byrne because then we'll have more chance of winning. Or well, yeah, but I know the repercussions. I know the consequences for that. And uh, I support those decisions. I support that and, and I'm, I'm okay with it. My job is to try to keep us improving. And then you hope that people understand that it isn't so straightforward. But again, that's, I can't control that. Given that, what are the realistic limits of this club's ambition and then obviously by definition your your ambition well there are probably two they're two separate things i think it's, it's, i have my own ambitions and the club have their ambitions because they have the 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 reality of football and um i think as i've always said i think you have to have two positions at at, at brighton and not just Brighton, but quite a lot of football clubs in the Premier League, which is ensure that you stay in the Premier League, ensure that, you, that you're not looking above and getting carried away with stuff and forgetting what you need to do, which is to fight every single day to stay in this league. It's so tough, so competitive. And then the rest is, well, you have to be really, we, really, we have to be really perfect. We have to align everything completely. Everything has to go our way. And we need others to be incompetent, essentially, not quite as competent as us. I mean that in the right way, for us to be able to achieve. I mean, I think a top 10 finish is achievable in a, in a season and you have to dream for Europe. I'm not saying Champions League, I think that's tough. That's a bit, that might be a bit too much out of the, out of the limit, but you don't want to suppress any ambition and any hope that football sports have mm. because they need to feel that they can compete and they need to feel that they can win I think once you've once you haven't got that, it's it starts to become very depressing. Mm. Well, football is based on hope, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And like I said, if if we if we just thought that it was a financial position and everything was decided by money, then everything in the end hope's lost. Yeah. You have what, to feel that you have to, up? exactly, exactly. So you have to be able to think, no, no, we can compete, we can, we can challenge, but we also have to remember that we have to do everything perfectly. And we have to make sure we, you know, we we keep ourselves in the in the league because that enables us to keep progressing. Mm. But it's um, a fascinating challenge and balance.
And you can't listen to the noise, as you put it. No, I don't think so. I mean, you just have to respect it and understand it um, and where it comes from. But, um, you know, we have, we have an understanding of where we're at. We have an understanding of what our resources are, what our possibilities are. We don't know for sure what everybody else is doing, what they can do or what their opportunities are. So, like I said, you can't really win that game of comparing yourself to anybody else. Mm. Just just keep focusing on us and trying to improve ourselves. Mm. This is a final question. I want to go to cricket, actually. Mike Atherton grew up with the initials FEC against his name, future England captain. Okay. He lived he lived with that as so growing up through the game. Now you've got FEM, future England manager, against yours. Now I don't expect you to talk about hypotheticals, but what would a role like that mean to you? If you had that role? Uh, it's a good question. I'm giving it a massive amount of thought because of the situation I'm in here. And I think the situation that we have in England with a, a very, very good England manager, the one that I support a lot, and I think he's done a fantastic job in Gareth. Um, I think that job, um, when I look back as a kid, is an incredibly challenging job. That's for sure. When I consider the, the press treatment of Bobby Robson, of Graham Taylor, Steve McLaren, Kevin Keegan, some top names, and the treatment they got was, as a young person, was you understand quickly how things are. It's an incredible honour, of course, because it's uh, you're representing your country, and it's uh, and, uh, fundamentally it would be in a very exciting role, and I'm sure Gareth thinks that. I'm sure he would say the same. It's a very exciting role because you get the intensity of international tournaments, of competing, of trying to qualify and then trying to compete. But it's, um, you know, you lose the day-to-day. -day. You lose the constant interaction with players and the people. And and uh, and really the, the thing that I like a lot about it is the challenge of the daily work, which is the interactions, the how people how people work with each other, uh, sometimes against each other. How do you deal with those things? So they're a fascinating part of the job for me that I think you'd probably lose because you, you don't see the players as much. So I think it's, a, it's as I've said, lots of things, challenging, but very exciting. Well, let's see what the future holds, shall we? We'll see. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate no it very much. No problem at all. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, Dave, but I found him highly impressive, emotionally engaged, but brutally realistic. He's been through the mill in the game. You know, you're here as someone who's got promoted with Sunderland last season. You've been let go by the club for the usual reasons of managers wanting their own people around them. When you listen to him, did you identify with him? Yeah, 100%. I think everything he said around that subject had value and if anybody was in that position at the time, same as I was, it does give you some comfort in the fact that you can't allow yourself to get too emotional about it. You have to see it the way that Graham describes it. You have to not take it personally. 
because sometimes you know if you look for too deep into into reasoning or like I said just just take it on a personal basis it it can really eat you up I think football in general we he talked about the um you know the young player that's has been released or his own experiences getting released uh, on on his wedding day if you if you take it personally, it can damage you, and then it hinders you as you go further on. And then if you allow that to, to to happen, then it can keep chipping away, chipping away, chipping away until at the end, then you're perhaps not strong enough to deal with what happens later on in your career. So you have to you have to learn that very early in your career, and it's all part of just becoming stronger and and, and becoming a having a thicker skin to what's to what comes at you because it, it, it's it's not easy to take these hits and, and keep on moving. But the way that he does it, he, he takes the emotion out of it, of course he does. And football is emotion. I, I'm a big believer in that. I mean, you know, we talked about my job at Sunderland. I was, you know, I have emotional links to it. I, I was a former player. I grew up there. So things might cut a little bit deeper, but I think the way that he sees it, it allows you to just move on, to analyse things properly, to look at it in the, uh, the cool light of day and really sort of just take lessons from it, exactly what he says, take lessons from it so you can learn from it and become better and use that experience for the positive way. Hmm. Yeah, you followed Graham Potter's career for a long time, Tony. What's your assessment of his qualities, you know, especially in, in keeping Brighton competitive in an environment which is brutally competitive and... You know, to use his own phrase, which struck with me, was that, you know, money isn't everything. He's an incredibly impressive guy, I think. And that came across, I think, in your interview, which was beautifully conducted, Mike, if I may say so. Thank you so much. We So we, I'll go, go back a bit. We first interviewed him in early 2018 when he, he was still with Ostersund. And actually, it was my colleague, Sarah Shepherd, who's now at the Athletics. She went out to Spain where Ostersund were doing a, um, a training camp. And she came back. Really, in fact, she interviewed Manuel Pellegrini, who was there with his Chinese club at the time, at the same at the same camp, and she came back talking entirely about Graham Potter, full of praise for him as a, as a communicator. He's a clearly innovative manager. You know, you touched a bit on some of the slightly more left field stuff that he did in terms of building the, the team collective when he was at Ostersunds. But he has a very clear idea of how he wants to manage a group of footballers. We interviewed Michael Jolly, who was managing Eskilstuna, a, a smaller club at the time when Potter was at Ostersunds, and went on to manage. I think Grimsby and Barrow briefly here. Anyway, he described Ostersund at the time as Graham Potter FC. And Ian Birchnell, who succeeded him at Ostersund and he's now at Forest Green, spoke to us about the challenge he faced going in to a club that was so heavily imbued with Potter's personality and influence. Now, this is a guy who, you know, he speaks with absolute composure, full confidence. He doesn't rant and rave, but he had a lot of coaching miles on the clock before he came to Swansea. And I think that shows that kind of confidence and composure that I think he oozes in a very quiet, unassuming way. But I think that's exactly what enables him to thrive and do so well in what is the hothouse atmosphere of the Premier League. Clearly thrives working within a a structure and a model of clarity and stability, which he has at Brighton, but he also contributes to that, I think. It's also interesting listening in your interview to talk to him about someone like Carl McCauley, who he trusts implicitly to be his eyes and ears in terms of recruitment so that he can focus more on the coaching of the players. So he has a great clarity to the way he coaches, the way he communicates, but he also has an amazing tactical flexibility, which I think, again, is built up through 20 years of coaching that, that other coaches that, you know, they don't have that background. They haven't had the ability to develop away from the eye, public eye as, as Potter has. 
And let's face it, if, but for the lack of a regular goal scorer, Brighton could have caused some real damage in the Premier League the last couple of seasons. That might still be an issue for him going forward. But, I mean, the fact that he continually gives the, the bigger teams real headaches, I mean, he's given Jurgen Klopp, from my point of view as a Liverpool follower, he's given Jurgen Klopp some absolute nightmares in, in the last couple of seasons. He's clearly able to mix it with the big boys in terms of the tactical flexibility. His clarity of message is brilliant. The way that David talks about him able to take the emotion out of it. And he has, he's faced some, some criticism from his own supporters at times, you know, when they haven't been scoring goals, which I find absolutely crazy. I mean, the question for Potter, I guess, is what's next? Does he? Because at Brighton, he has, he's in a kind of nourishing atmosphere that is so well managed. Unless things start, the wheels start to come off, which I can't see happening. It must take such a really big job to coax him out. Yeah, well, I suppose that, you know, to, to expand that point, David, you know, I came away from that chat and so I, I made it the last question in the interview. There is a future England manager there, isn't there? 100%. He doesn't waste his words, you know, especially, you know, I think you've maybe alluded to it where, like, interviews, post and pre-match interviews can become a bit tedious when it's uh, about insignificant parts of the game. You know, when he's, you could see what, from the very first question that you asked him that he was engaged. It was questions he wasn't used to answering and he was delighted to expand on them. Apart from really the, the, the England question where, like I said, he doesn't waste his words, but he danced around that one like Michael Flatley, which you, you would do in his position. <laughs> and and he's right to do that. He's very sort of um, correct in the way that he, that he approaches that question. But there's no doubt that he will be an England manager if he wants to. And that's the that's the question, you know. I'm sure there's been opportunities when he can move away from Brighton. There's been approaches from other clubs, hundred percent sure. But you have to ask yourself the question when you, you look at the structure. And we talk about the lack of structure, or seemingly lack of structure of the clubs. Where's he going to find that? Where's he going to find? I mean, Tony's keeps mentioning this word clarity. That, that, there's a total clarity in the way that he works, the way that his teams play, the way that the club that he's at run now. He was the one of the big reasons why I went to Sweden myself. I went to Ostersunds when Ian Birchall took over. We both went in there. Of course, it's a difficult job taking over from somebody who's created that such a mythological team. I mean, if you see where they are now, bottom of the second tier in, in Swedish football, and he took them to European football and winning it, the Emirates. That's the reason why myself and Ian went there. And it was because of the, the structure that he created the club, what he created... And for me, it was to see, well, what had happened. And of course, there was, a, there was a few staff left there from Graham's time, but it was great to hear how he worked. I mean, talking about his, his team meetings and tactical meetings, how thorough they were. And again, going back to this clarity, the way they play, it's, it, at times it can be very complex. And people often talk about, oh, football's a simple game. It's not a simple game. It's chaos, and it's about harnessing that chaos. And the way that he does it, he doesn't simplify things, but he makes what he does so, so clear with a lot of clarity. As well as uh, expressing kudos for David for getting a reference to Michael Flatley into this particular podcast, <laughs> um, he also, when it comes to England, he absolutely hits the nail on the head of whether Potter would, e would even want it. The England job doesn't feel like quite the poison chalice it once was, does it? I think both... Gareth Southgate and the current generation of players deserve a lot of credit for that. But in effect, he'd be leaving, say he was off, he was leaving Brighton to England, he'd be leaving a job in the top half of the Premier League to what is in, in essence a part-time coaching job with players you don't see very often. That seems to me the complete antithesis of what Potter is all about as a coach. I, I'm not so sure he'd want it. 
Mm. Just looking elsewhere, Dave, you know, Steve Cooper has that sort of FA development background with the under-17s. Is that the right sort of experience that he needs to fashion what is essentially going to be a new Nottingham Forest team from so many players? I think it was 15 have come in at the last count. And should he beware the problems that Fulham had the last time they went out and basically bought a new team? Yes, yeah, certainly. And even just going back to, to the Graham Potter interview when he talks about about it being about the human first rather than the X's and the O's, I think that's the, the, the big challenge that Steve Cooper's got is to gel this team together. Say it was 15 last count, players that they've been brought in. That's not an easy task. Now, would you rather that and give yourself a chance or do what Scott Potter's done at Bournemouth where he's kept much of that team together and brought in only a, f- a few players important that squads to keep some continuity? That's the two ends of the spectrum, isn't it, really? I mean, I, I remember at one time, you know, you talk about Steve Cooper being, coming from a FA educated or FA a background. That wouldn't be the compliment that it is now at one time, you know? And, and I think that... Um, as we look back at all these coaches, what you see is is the the grounding that they've had, and they haven't all started at the top. It's a problem that somebody like Frank Lampard and, and to a certain extent Stephen Gerrard. I know he, he was in the the academy at Liverpool before before he went to Rangers. It's about sort of being able to develop that coaching strategy and, and to the way you coach and your your philosophy and and having all those experiences so you can be very adaptable when it comes to the Premier League because it is, Steve Cooper's got a huge task on his hand to keep uh, to keep the club into the, in the Premier League. But what he has got, he's got a great grounding and, and great experiences and he's he's been he's been able to make mistakes out of the limelight. And now when it comes to having to make these decisions and trying to form this team and gel them together, then he's much more prepared for it. David's exactly right in saying that because, and that's the one difference I think I'd point to between Steve Cooper with Forrest now and Scott Parker with Fulham two years ago. Parker was still pretty wet behind the ears as, as a head coach. He didn't have that coaching background that Steve Cooper had. And so I think with that huge influx of players, I think it was a significantly greater challenge than it, than it might prove for, for Steve Cooper. It will still be a challenge, but the reality is, Forrester and their owners have been waiting to get back into the Premier League for years. They were always going to go big if they did it. So I don't, I'm don't. i not even sure Cooper's necessarily had much of a choice in the amount of recruitment that's happened. But his coaching pedigree and his coaching background does suggest that he's in a better position than Parker was two years ago to, to make, a, make a good job of it. Mm. Scott Parker is uh, you know, taking his Bournemouth team to Arsenal. Is this a definitive season, do you think, Dave, for Mikel Arteta? Yes, certainly. Whatever progress Arteta has made, you can't say that he's not been given the time. There's been a lot of pressure at times on him from from Arsenal fans. Now's the time to deliver, and and you know they're spending big in the in the transfer market for uh, for the second season running. And if after the time that he's had at the, at the wheel now, if he hasn't been able to have a huge influence of the way that the the squad is is built and also the way that they're playing, then the big questions are going to start to be asked, aren't they? Yeah. We've also got the Petrodonna derby at St. James's on Sunday. Tony, progress report on Eddie Howe, please. Has it been a bit more softly, softly than than perhaps you expected? Possibly, yeah. But I'm not sure that's a 
terrible thing for the club. It's, it's definitely, in terms of progress report, it's definitely so far so good. I think I'm not sure he could have done much better last season, could he, to tell you. I mean, they finished 11th. They weren't they, just on the brink of the top half, bearing in mind where they were when he arrived. And it's actually a hell of an achievement. And it was done on the back of significant but not crazy spending in the January. I think Kieran Trippier, while he was fit, Chris Wood, Dan Burnham, was it Bruno Guimaraes, were all, they all improved the team. Signings over the summer, not, again, not spectacular by any stretch, but Matt Target, who was on loan, has, has joined full-time. Nick Pope from Burnley and, and Sven Botman has been the, the big money move at, at, at centre-back. They, they, again, will all improve the team. I think we've all expected this massive explosion, haven't we, of spend. I do enjoy your description of it as the petrodollar derby. But for now, it feels like it's a case of kind of step-by-step. Step. And I don't know whether that's come from Eddie Howe or whether that's just the way the club have decided to do it. But I think whatever you want to say about the ownership, um, which is a separate affair, but kind of after the, the kind of managed decay of the, the Mike Ashley era, I think Newcastle fans will definitely take where they are and what they're doing right now. They'll probably get Tom to the weekend, but they won't be the only team who, who has that. Mm. It does seem business as, as usual at City. But what about Liverpool, Dave? Injuries are obviously a factor. There also seems to be almost like a fractional lack of intensity, which is obviously the quality that, that defines them. Who will they need to look to to just get over this little blip? Well, I mean, we see there's a you know a fractional lack of intensity, but we weren't seeing that in the community shield against City. You know, it was the absolute opposite. Uh, they were the ones who were hitting the ground running straight away. And, and Jurgen Klopp, he just seems to be a little bit... Um, you know, he, he seems to be finding questions a little more tedious than, than they actually are. You know, he's he's a little bit irritated by things, which he, he can be at, at, at times, but um, it's two, you know, two games into the season, you know, and I think he's probably frustrated at the sort of the short-termism of, the, of people's thinking where, you know, the question Darwin Nunes, you know, barely before the season started, of course, his question's going to come after he's uh, sending off on Monday night. But as as much as these big signings for certainly for for City and Liverpool in in the striking department, it's not as much a case of like how how well they're going to do. It's about how they affect the, the people around them. You see, with Darwin Nunes, you know, is an out and out forward, different to how they've been operating with Bobby Firmino, and. Looking at just in the short space of time, it's you can see it's affecting Mo Salah. Mo Salah is taking up a more wide position that where going back to his, his Chelsea days, where he, he's he's less effective, and and it's the same with Holland as well. You know they're not used to having that striker in front of them. So when they've been playing without a striker or not not a, a striker up against centre halves and like so Gundogan is making runs beyond the back line to to try and get a position where a strike would be, there's already somebody there. And, and okay, it hasn't affected them so far, and you, but you can see it just disjoints their attacking play a little bit. But it'd be interesting to see how the other players around them adapt to, to Nunes and uh, and to Holland. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll cheer you up as a Liverpool fan, Tony. It's only Manchester United at Old Trafford on Monday night. The pantomime just keeps getting more surreal. You know, we've got Elon Musk getting involved now, making jokes about being a potential owner. The serious side of that point. The Glazer ownership, that's cost the club £1.6 billion, including £465 million in direct payments. That's according to Swiss Ramble, who is the best financial operator on social media. 
That type of takeover, I know it's way after the fact now, but that shouldn't have been allowed, should it? <laughs> Frankly, who am I to say yes or no? I, I just, I mean, I think the Glazers are by no means the only football club owners in, in England in the past decade or the past 20 years that probably shouldn't have been allowed. But the reality is that it, that it has. So United just have to deal with what's in front of them. A predictable crisis, possibly. I mean, again, the, the reality is that regardless of the ownership, well, actually, no, it's not regardless of the ownership. It's a, it's a direct relation to the ownership. But the club have been in some sort of slow motion crisis ever since Alex Ferguson walked out of the door and then shuffled back in to, to sit in the stands. And the Glazers have glazed over. Can I say that? Uh, <laughs> I wish you wouldn't. Yeah, too late. <laughs> they, they've glazed over it with just this, this huge number of kind of big name and big money signings that are kind of papered over the cracks to a point. As did as did Fergie when he was there at the back end. They were winning titles they shouldn't have won with a fairly average squad just through the power of his own coaching and personality, it seemed. But the reality is they've been in they've been in decline for the best part of a decade. And you know, I know we all laughed at the time when Jose Mourinho said that finishing second with Man United was his greatest managerial achievement. But actually it's it's starting to look more accurate by the day, isn't it? Um and unfortunately this has come for United at a time when other clubs, and we've talked about Brighton, you know, we haven't talked about Brentford so much, but they're an incredibly well-run club. And regardless of where the money's coming from, Man City, Newcastle going in great direction, Liverpool very astutely run, Arsenal soon to be going in the right direction. Like there are so many clubs that are actually being well managed at the moment. All it does does it just put into even sharper focus what an absolute shambles. And I take no pleasure in saying that as a Liverpool fan, Manchester United currently are at the moment. He does, dear reader, he does. Um, I suppose, though, you know, you've been in dressing rooms. What happens when things go sour, when the culture just basically collapses, which it seems to have done at, at United? How do you get out over that? I think Eric Ten Hag is, is being given a, a real difficult job to do. You know, the moment he walks through the door, like, you know, he's thrown a curveball and it's made of manure when it comes to the issues with Ronaldo and. You know, we talked about the hierarchy of football clubs before and, and everything in a football club, whether it's above, below, in the coaching staff, it's to facilitate the manager to make the best decisions and come up with the best game plan and to carry out his job as best as possible. Now, at the moment, Eric Ten Hag isn't, isn't allowed to do that. And straight away, I mean, he's even been questioned on his, um, on his authority in the dressing room, on the way that he is in press conferences, his demeanour on the sidelines. And, and Graham Potter, going back to that again, he, he mentions all that about the noise and try to shut out all that noise. As difficult as it is at a club like Manchester United, that's what Eric Ten Hag's got to do. The only thing he's got to do is is control what he can and to try and get the best out that side. And But you, you look at the performances, especially the, the performance against Brentford, where it, not only were Brentford great, don't get me wrong, they deserve all the credit in the world, but they're the architects of their own downfall. And because they don't have that Frankie De Jong player who's, uh, who they desperately uh, need, then they're having to drop sort of Christian Eriksen down into near the back line to, to help with build-up. You've got David De Gea's um, performance as well. Even in that uh, the, the pass to, to Eriksen, you can see the detail on the passes. He should have been playing the ball to his right foot and not to his left, so it makes it more difficult for him to turn the ball around the corner. And sometimes, as a manager, regardless of what's going on on the training pitch and team meetings, 
that you can't control. You can't control the, the mistake by De Gea. You, you can't control uh, the inability to play through Brentford's press. He's just in a real difficult position at the moment. And you, you see all these people, uh, all the paper talk about him, you know, maybe he, he's going to step back straight away, you know. And to be honest, as ludicrous as it seems, if that was the case, I could fully understand it. Well, big managers make big decisions. Now, Summit United evidently believe that the club can still profit from Cristiano Ronaldo, the brand. But Cristiano Ronaldo, the disaffected footballer? Forget it. He's become a caricature of himself. Now, that's sad because in so many ways, he's a consummate professional. I think others need to go because the culture at that club is palpably rotten. But there would be something symbolic and significant about Ronaldo being the first domino to fall. I'd love to see him have one last hurrah at Atletico Madrid with Diego Simeone. Their relationship wouldn't be cosy, but it would be compelling. All of it different from the calmness and clarity, there's that word again, that Graham Potter brings to Brighton. Thanks to him and, of course, to David and Tony for their insight. Please tell us what we're doing right and what we can improve. The best way to do that is by popping us a review on Apple. I promise we'll be listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.